us on. So we started a new uh, course last week, New Testament Survey. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a survey of the New Testament, just as it says. It's sort of an overview, and then we'll dig into the books. Um, it won't be as in-depth as we did our verse-by-verse -verse thing, but we will cover the books and sort of give you the highlights and the things you need to be looking for uh, as we roll with that. And, you know, last week we began our discussion talking about the New Testament and the Old Testament and, and sort of how they fit together. And we, we talked about the, there's a little quiet gap in between the two Testaments. Um, Testament means covenant, and this is uh, about the covenant that we have with God uh, and uh, that, that preeminent in both Testaments, the Old and the New, is Jesus Christ, uh, and He's unifying all of them together. And, and um, the New Testament helps us to understand uh, the Old Testament. A lot of things are revealed in that, but, but everything that sort of was coming in the New Testament was back there in the Old Testament. Now it's been revealed in the New and so we began to look at those things together last week. This week we're going to do a little more um, sort of introduction, and then uh, we'll actually start talking about the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, I said to you this would be a good time to read through the New Testament and just pick it up in the Gospel of Matthew and just start to read it. And if you will read five, six chapters a day, which isn't much reading, uh, you'll knock out the New Testament ahead of the time that I finish talking about it all. So, um, but it would probably be a good exercise for you to do, and, and uh, it's a great, great read, and it doesn't take long, and you should be reading it all the time. So what are we going to talk about here first? I want to mention um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, because most of you have probably heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls at some point in time, and just sort of so you know what they are, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a discovery in 1947 in the uh, Qumran village. Uh, which is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem on the shore of the Dead Sea. And uh, apparently this shepherd uh, threw a rock into a cave and heard a funny noise and went in to investigate, and he found the first uh, discovery of these. This, it was a massive collection of Hebrew writings that had been hidden in these caves for a couple of thousand years. And um, what they came up with is they began to piece um, the, the writings together and... and um, it's not that they hadn't discovered ancient texts before, but this was the biggest collection they'd found in the sort of the best shape that they'd found. Um, and, and still, 2,000 years old, it's not like it was like pristine. But they recovered through these documents, uh, hundreds and hundreds of documents, and um, they were pretty much able to um, uh, get documents from every Old Testament book except for Nehemiah, I think, was the only one that they couldn't find in there. Um, other than that, no, Habakkuk. Other than that, they found every other book, and they had fragments of every other book in there, and extremely um, accurate compared to what we have now, so that it, it backs up very well for us that the Bible has stayed true in its form over the time that we had it. It's stuck to it. So they were able to, you know, proof and see that, that what we have is the inerrant word of Scripture. It's it's kept its way through us in miraculous ways, and uh, and and so. But at that, there wasn't New Testament fragments in there. Now, lately, they've said they found a few New Testament, but the New Testament was written right around the time that um, uh, these would have been put in the caves in that community. So they hadn't started to be old yet and historical in that context the way they were. 
but they they um, they help scholars get uh, much closer to the original Old Testament uh, text, and they sort of help set up the historical and cultural context for the New Testament era. So there was a whole community back then, the Essene community, who saved these documents and carefully put them in the caves, and they. They found them in like four different caves in there once they started looking. They're fascinating when you think about how... how but it, it sort of goes to the idea that God has protected the Scripture for us for all this time. So that what we have is what we need to have. Uh, his Word, His God-breathed Word is still um, intact and coming to us. So you, you will hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you need to know they, they pretty much verify the Old Testament Scripture that we have. Um, but... but uh, the New Testament had, was just being written around then, so not to their back. Like I said, they were 2,000 years old. All right, another um, a word that you will see or hear us talk about is canon. Um, and we, we call it the, the, testament, the canon of Scripture. It comes from the, uh, the, the, the word is from the rule of law that was used to determine if a book measured up to a standard. And so um, the canon of Scripture, as we call it, we believe is these 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Um, and from the early church on that was established that way, uh, pretty much they had that set in uh, by about uh, 200. They had set on, they had agreed on these books as being canon. Um, and they had some tests that they had to pass back then, the early church, very specific criteria. Um, in order to be a part of the New Testament, the book needed to be written by someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, that was a question they asked. Did it pass the truth test? And that means did it concur with the already other agreed upon scripture? Uh, and then um, the books that they finally agreed on, the 27 we have, have endured the test of time. And, and uh, Christian orthodoxy has embraced them with little challenges now for centuries. Some um, groups have some other books that they add, lots of different books, but uh, you, you may have heard of the Apocrypha, um, which uh, some churches um, will say is part of the canon. We don't believe that it is, and, and uh, so let me just say that. So they are interesting to read, but, but we don't hold them as being uh, canon, as being the, the inerrant word of God. They, they add some ideas and some thoughts, but they didn't stand. They, and they came a little later than uh, in time. And then there's challenges sometimes to some books that were written uh, in the, you know, 200 plus, And they thought they should be included as well. But, but we're, we're very settled that the Holy Spirit inspired the people working on that in the earlier church to include these books uh, as canon. And so that's what we ended up with. So 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and there you go. We're going to start looking at them. The first three Gospels, first three books in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, uh, so all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but different uh, authors. And, and uh, um, those three Gospels are often called the synoptic Gospels because they share a lot of things in common. They, they seem to be very similar to one another in context and expression. And so they're called the synoptic gospels. Uh, synoptic means to see together with a common view. And um, so the sort of theory has come up over time that, that perhaps there was some sort of common source that they wrote from. And I'm just, I'm going to toss this one out there too in case you read about it somewhere. 
And then, and I'm going to tell you why I don't believe it to be true, but that's just my opinion. They, you will hear sometimes of another book called Q. That's what they decided to call it. And they felt like Matthew, Mark, and Luke all had Q as a common source, and they were just taking from that process. And, uh, and so what they, were, they believed that these three must have copied from another source. Now, that theory pretty much comes from, although it's, it's accepted by a big chunk of the church, there's, uh, unfortunately there's a lot of the church that doesn't believe the Scripture is God-breathed. They, they don't believe it to be the inerrant Word of God. They don't believe it to be, have authority. They, they don't. And so they start looking for things to pick on, and they, they look at some of those things, and they're going, well, this was this. There was just this big source that they were viewing from, which was Q. And, uh, and, so, and they also believe that it was written, the Bible was written much later than we believe it was written. So they think that these, it was all written after 70 A.D., and we don't. We believe that most of it was penned before then, and... Um, Here's sort of how we think it happened, is that the uh, rough dates, so you, you know, you have Jesus, sort of the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection somewhere around 30 A.D. in that ballpark, 33 A.D., somewhere in there. Um, when, he, when he rose and uh, he told his guys what to do as he was descending into heaven, he basically said, I'll be back, which we're, we're all expecting. But he didn't give them a time frame. And so they knew they were supposed to be busy till they came back. But if you were looking at sort of their reference, and we talked about this, which would have been sort of a Jewish uh, marriage ceremony, because he'd said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'll be back. Customarily, that was about a year. When, when a groom would go to get ready for his bride, it took about a year for him to get the house sort of ready, and then the father would send him to come back. So they had a lot of that stuff going on. I'm pretty sure they figured, he's, we watched him go, we saw these things, he's coming back. And so they were busy, and they were out preaching the gospel and doing the things we know from the book of Acts that they were going around and, you know, teaching everybody about Jesus, getting people into the kingdom, and praying for people and doing all the stuff they were supposed to do. Um, and, and they did that, and they did that, and they did that, and Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so, uh, and so all of them, you know, would have been 30, 40 when they started, or maybe a little younger, especially John might have been a little younger, maybe 20, young guy following Jesus, but in Jesus' age range. Um, so when 20 years go by or so, and they start to get to be in their 50s, and Jesus hasn't come back, that basically the thought is they, you know, we should probably write some of this down. <laughs> because we were there, and we saw it, we're eyewitnesses, but now, you know, and we've taught you guys, but, and so we believe they began under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these things down somewhere around AD 50, most of them AD 50, and then, you know, we got... The Apostle Paul might have started writing letters to the church sooner than that, maybe back in the 40s, and uh, 50, 60, somewhere in there. The, most of these guys decided, hey, it was time to write, and they got writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, when you, when you understand that um, they, uh, these early writers had a lot of the same context with Jesus, or in the case of Luke, who did a, a lot of studying and was with um, these guys and heard their stories when he began to write, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those, those Gospels, those first three, would have a lot of commonality because they were writing about the same subject and they had been there or been very close to it. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, we believe that's why they began to uh, write and why there's a lot of stuff in common between those Gospels, um, which I just think there should be. And, and so that was very important. Then, you know, John writes his differently. 
Um, and we'll get to that one in the process. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see a lot of the same things covered, slightly different perspectives, and they're, they're sort of written to different target audiences. And we'll talk about that as we go. So we get up to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, and uh, th- th- that's what the first one we're going to start looking at and do a little overview of. Um, um, written by Matthew, uh, the Apostle Matthew. Most of you know Matthew's history. He was a tax collector, and, and uh, Jesus called him to follow, and he does. Somewhere, we believe, between 55 and 65 A.D., Matthew had written to this. And Matthew is really writing to um, the, the Jewish community about Jesus, that he's the promised Messiah. And um, Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot, more than any of the other Gospels. Matthew includes Old Testament Scripture uh, in, in his Gospel. Um, he describes in detail the lineage of Jesus from David and, and uses many forms of speech that the Jews would have been comfortable with. And uh, uh, you can tell that Matthew has a, a great love and concern for his people and, uh, and how meticulously Matthew details the, um, the Gospel story. Uh, it's also the kind of book you would expect from someone who was a tax collector. Uh, it's very orderly. It's very concise. As a tax collector, Matthew would have had a skill that, um, uh, where he could record things in very um, fast and yet very um, uh, easy ways for him, for him to sort of get back to uh, sort of a shorthand. Anybody ever write in shorthand? You ever know anybody? It used to be a big skill, right? My, my mom was a secretary. She could write in shorthand. And I was like, that's ridiculous. How do you know what to... And she would just hold another language, right? Um, but, but, uh, but so the, he would have had a type of shorthand, they believe. So, um, so it was possible, we believe, that Matthew could sort of record word for word what people were saying because he would have had this skill of this shorthand. And so when you read Matthew's sort of version of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the, the most amazing sermon probably ever, uh, and very long. In Matthew's account, you probably have it, you're getting it word for word, because we expect he was had shorthand to go back to, and he was keeping it. And, you know, have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, too. It brings everything to your mind as you need it. So uh, all that is going on in the process. And so, so we have all these neat things happening in the Gospel of Matthew in the process. Uh, some of the key verses, and there's, a, I love Matthew, but I, I say that about, I always say that. My favorite verse is, and then it's whatever comes out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of everything. That, and so when, when, you, when, you, when you hear the term law and prophets, um, that's all, basically all of the Old Testament. Um, so he's saying, I didn't come to get did away with that. I've come to fulfill it. And so it's fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Matthew five forty three through uh, 44. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This was a huge sort of deal. And, and Jesus is going to introduce into the culture a lot of things that are going to try and turn it on its end because that was not what they were into at all. Remember, they, they, um, they've been oppressed by the Romans and they hate them. And in effect, Jesus is telling them, you need to, you need to stop hating like that. You need to learn to, how you can love and pray for 
those people that are persecuting you. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Most of you will know this as the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So perhaps the best known passage uh, of Scripture there is, like everybody seems to know the Lord's Prayer. Even people that didn't go to church knew the Lord's Prayer. Um, I remember when I was growing up, there was two or three different songs over a 15-year period that were the Lord's Prayer that I used to hear on the radio, and I didn't go to church or anything, but I remember hearing them. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Just as a little side note, uh, was never intended to be just a prayer of that you just recite. Um, it was really a model for prayer, and and that uh, um, when you and, and when you say it or read it, um, it's sort of a great model of how to pray. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. You, you, and if you pause right there, and it's just a chance for you to sort of worship for a moment as part of your prayer model and, and thank God for who he is and what he's done and remember that he's God and that you're not. And then, you know, let your kingdom come. Your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. God, I, I want it to be about you, not me. I don't want to be on the throne. I want you on the throne of my life. I want your will to be done. Use me, God, in this life and day. Give us today our daily bread. Great time for us to pray for um, our needs and pray for our uh, the people that we know's needs and and uh, we lift all those things up to Him and and we're supposed to do that. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, uh, as we forgiven our debtors. Great time to I I, I call it um, so I pray that every morning I call it my keeping my account short with God. Lord, forgive me for whatever. And then I think about it and I don't just want to be sort of generic. If I got anything that's in there, you know, the Holy Spirit show me, and I want to make sure I'm I'm good with that, and and uh, and then anybody that's you know I, I'm holding anything against, well, I just I want to let them go. I don't want to carry that mess around. I don't want to let that move into anything else. Um, and so we pray that that happens. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit. Um, when do I have that? See, for, see, here's the thing. You're, um, in Christ, you're forgiven. Remember we, how we talked about being justified? I said that there was, when you're saved, you, you're, you're justified, you're sanctified, and you're glorified. And, and so there's the, the idea that you are saved and you're being saved and you will be saved. You, I know you've heard me teach on that. Well, this idea being that you are saved, when you come to know Jesus, you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you're, you're saved, you're justified. Um, and it's just as if you'd never sinned. That's how God is choosing to see you now. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit comes, and He, as we yield to Him, He's being being this work. And and in some sense, we are sanctified, but we're being sanctified. Uh, and, and, and then glorification is when we go to be with Him or He comes to get us, however that works. Um, but these are the ideas of salvation. But you are saved when you come to Christ. Well, because you're justified, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And so if our sins are forgiven, what are we asking for? See, the, the, the reason I think it's important that we keep those accounts, it's not that we're not forgiven. It's, it's that we need to connect with the fact that we're forgiven. There's something about us that, that benefits from getting with God and, and confessing. Because and, and, uh, we're not earning. It's not a work where we're earning something. We're already forgiven. It's just uh, being able to apply it to our lives. And so it's very important. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one is the end of that prayer. Generally, when I get to that part of the prayer, I, I pray the armor of God on and uh, just get my day going and ask him to remind me of those things. All right. 
Matthew 16, 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Great verse that talks about how you could accomplish everything uh, in life, but if you don't know Jesus at the end, you're, you're going to be short. You, you, you miss the main thing of this life. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. If you've been coming here for any time, you have heard this repeatedly. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. So I don't know how many times I get to that, but it's very often. Love, love God all in, right? It's part of our deal, right? Love God all in, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about loving neighbors. We just did part of that last series we've been in. It's all about that and loving ourselves all tied into the ten uh, commandments or words. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-one. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. Um, Matthew gives us a, a heart-wrenching picture of crucifixion and all that Jesus endured on our behalf, taking our sin upon him. Matthew 28, 5-6, the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So we have a, a picture and uh, the passage of Scripture that deal with the resurrection which was uh, an established fact. The resurrected Jesus was seen by hundreds of witnesses. Remember, Paul tells us when, when we look at those gospel verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, that not only did all the apostles see him, not only did Paul see a resurrected Jesus, but so did hundreds of eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote in 40 or 50 A.D. And, and in effect, he's saying, go ask one of the eyewitnesses about the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, um, before he ascended, said this in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And, and on our last course on the kingdom of God, we talked about this present age and the age to come and all that that means and how it ties together. That phrase, kingdom of God, that we defined as the rule and the reign uh, of God uh, and His authority to rule, it occurs 68 times in 10 uh, different New Testament books. And kingdom of heaven occurs 32 times and, and only in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew, because of the group he was writing to. And, and so there was a hesitancy. So the Jewish people didn't write the word for God. Um, they... they, they they abbreviated it and did it funny and didn't say his name. They felt funny in saying his name. And so when Matthew is writing to them, he substitutes kingdom of heaven, which they were more comfortable with. But they're interchangeable, and we looked at that and how they're interchangeable in the process. And remember from that last course, the kingdom of God is now and not yet. I touched that a little. You'll also see as you start to read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke some different titles for Jesus. Son of God is one of them. Um... So Jesus is God's Son in that um, He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. That's in Luke. Uh, and uh, so we have that. Son of Man is another term for Jesus. Uh, 88 times in the New Testament, it was a Messianic title. So it's a, Son of Man is a Messianic title. And then Son of David. 17 verses in the New Testament describe Jesus as the Son of David. So Jesus was a promised Messiah, which meant He was the seed of David. 
So uh, fascinating, if you, if you get into the genealogies um, in Matthew 1, we, we see that Jesus in his humanity was a descendant of Abraham and David um, through Joseph, and Joseph was Jesus' legal father. But remember, the Immaculate Conception. So his legal genealogy is coming through David. But uh, in Luke, we actually see a different uh, uh, lineage for Jesus, and it's actually going to come through Mary. And so both of his parent lines run right back up the way they're supposed to in the process so that he could indeed be the seed that was promised and was to come. And so um, that's referring to his messianic messianic title, Son of David, uh, in the process. So that's enough information for one day. That's a lot of information, but you should have good notes now. And uh, we will, when I get back, we'll pick it up and we'll we'll keep pressing through the rest of the Gospels. But that's where we're going to end for now. If you're watching by video, thanks for watching. And uh, come and hang out when you get a chance. Prayer is available on the website. If you go to the prayer page, we will pray for you. And we will see you soon.